All right, today we're in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 7. I'm going to, if you turn there, I'm going to call up Chris Del Ponte. He's going to come and read for us this morning. We're in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 to 12, if you could stand for the reading of God's word. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had, no, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Chris. You may be seated. All right. Well, today's title is The Crushed Offering for Guilt, and the theme of our message today is Jesus Offered His Life for Our Guilt. Uh, we pick up the poem that we left off with last week. Um, the verse that we ended with last week was Isaiah 53 and verse 6. It's a very familiar verse, one that is memorized and quoted often. Uh, even as little children, we learn this verse in Sunday school. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Now, I'm a strong proponent for memorizing Scripture. I believe it's one of the most important things that you can do for living a productive, blessed, God-focused life. Uh, because the exercise of remembering God's Word uh, sinks the character and the thoughts and the desires and the wisdom of God into the flesh of your mind and into the soul of your being. And so I'm all for memorizing. However, the danger of memorizing sentences or short phrases or single verses in the Bible is that we can sometimes pull them out of context. And when we do this, we lose some of the rich meaning. We can lose some of the punch of some of those verses. And this particular verse is meant to pack a punch. Uh, taken out of context of the song of the suffering servant, out of this incredible lament for the tragedy that the servant went through, we can minimize the message, a message that's meant to pierce our heart like a knife. The message of this verse and this song is meant to shake us awake to the reality of God's severe but oh-so-loving uh, mercy, a mercy that was bestowed upon undeserving people for whom God is producing a gentle justice. And thus the metaphor of sheep. We are all like sheep. Now, I've said it before, uh, but this uh, being likened to sheep is not a most flattering description of us, right? Sheep are stupid animals uh, who have a propensity to put themselves in harm's way. Uh, sheep are not smart enough to drink clean water uh, because they don't, uh, they don't know any better. They will drink muddy water, uh, contaminated, and it will make them sick. Uh, but on the other hand, even if sheep are 
extremely thirsty, they won't drink uh, from any gurgling spring or a, a bubbling brook or whatever because they startle easily. And so uh, they need to be led by still waters so that they'll actually drink. And sheep can't find food for themselves. They need to be led to green pastures uh, or they simply will star starve standing up. Uh, and sheep are not like cattle or deer or any other animal who can find their way out to pasture and back home again. Sheep are too stupid to memorize the path, uh, even if they have walked it a dozen times. Sheep need to be led down the right path by a shepherd. They can never go it alone because they will hopelessly get lost or they will fall off of a cliff or they will fall down into a ravine or a steep hole. They have no defenses against predators. And so it's not a real flattering thing to be considered a sheep. And now last week we found that the ones who are speaking in this psalm are the Jews, the Gentiles, the kings of the earth who have, who have seen the suffering servant and are astonished and they're horrified at the sight of him. And we talked about that last week. The servant, as he grew up, was so unassuming and below average looking that they pretty much ignored him. And then when they saw him get pierced and crushed and smitten by God, they thought it was because of his own sins and his own wrongdoing that he suffered those things. But in verse 5, they came to an understanding that they were wrong. He was pierced and he was crushed for our sins. That the suffering servant's wounds were what brought healing to us. And then this admission in verse 6, they were saying, we were oblivious to what God was doing through this suffering servant. God was bringing peace and healing to us through the things which the servant suffered. And all the while, we were acting like stupid sheep. Every one of us was going our own way. All of us were like sheep without a shepherd heading towards the cliffs and the ravines and the holes in the ground, resulting in us falling without the ability to get back up. We were wandering around, slurping from every mud puddle we could find, resulting in sickness and death. We polluted ourselves with dirty water. We were starving for nourishment and healthy food. We were hopelessly lost on our own way, and we were lost in the darkness of strange ravines and caverns. We went astray. We made the choice. We didn't pay attention to the shepherd. We thought we could do it on our own way, so we turned down the wrong path, the path of sin and iniquity and guilt and rebellion, to our own ruin and destruction. All we like sheep went astray. And while we were doing that, Yahweh, the all-knowing, ever-loving, personal God, put upon the suffering servant the sin, the guilt, and the rebellion of all of us. And this is the realization that each person must come to before they can be born again into the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that in verse 7, the metaphor continues, but with an ironic twist. God describes himself in the person of the suffering servant as a sheep, as a lamb. But this is a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb, a lamb that was obedient to the Lord God, a lamb that was not rebellious and was free from guilt and unblemished by any sin. Let's read verse 7 to 11 of Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So our first point today is that the servant made his soul an offering for our guilt. So the servant was oppressed, it says. He was treated harshly and he was afflicted. As we all, like arrogant, prideful, rebellious sheep, ran around drinking from every cesspool and falling into every ravine and wandering into every wasteland garbage dump, he was being oppressed and afflicted, driven by whips to the slaughterhouse. And he didn't open his mouth, it says. He was silent. Speaking would have helped, wouldn't have helped him anyway. They would, have, they would not have listened to him, remember? He was of no stately form and of no majesty that commanded no one's attention, right? In fact, he was the type of individual from whom people hide their faces. And so he was led to the slaughter like a lamb, quiet and submissive. He opened not his mouth because his oppressors were hell-bent on killing him. But no one seemed to care, it says. The ESV says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off. And the word oppression here can be translated restraint or, or prison. The concept of, is being arrested. And the word judgment carries the idea of a verdict coming down on someone. And the word generation just refers to all the people that are, are alive during a certain period of time. And so his generation would simply mean all his contemporaries. So, so verse 9 goes on to say that he was innocent of the crimes and he wasn't guilty of lying or deceit. And so this was an unjust trial. He was unjustly detained and he was falsely accused. And to put this verse in modern vernacular, it would be like this. The servant was arrested and restrained and taken into custody. And the verdict of the judge was that he was guilty unto death, even though he was innocent. And then for the crowds, all those around him didn't even care. I like how the Net Bible captures the essence of what Isaiah is saying here. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? No one cared. Everyone was too busy wandering away down their own paths of sin and destruction. They were oblivious as to what really was happening and what God was really up to. That through the death of this servant, God demonstrated his power in a severe mercy. God was revealing his strong arm even through him that was despised, from him that we hid our faces from. And we didn't pay attention. We didn't even consider that the servant was murdered. He was cut off from the land of the living. Last week we saw that the people described the servant as a twig. Remember, I, I know I put myself out there, I called myself a twiggins, and I've heard it all week long. Um, and here that twig was simply cut off from the land of the living, stricken, ruthlessly killed because of the rebellion of his people. And as a result of no one caring or noticing or paying any attention to what was going on, Verse 9, no concern was given for his body. In fact, they buried his body, or they were going to bury his body with the wicked. They made or assigned his gravesite with the criminals. I want you to think about that for a minute. How do humans traditionally treat the bodies of criminals? We simply bury them anywhere. No special markings, no expensive coffin, no, no special treatment. The ones who murdered the servant were just going to throw his body into a grave with all the other criminals and sinners, with no wake, no funeral service, no time of mourning, no sharing of memories to honor 
the man Jesus. He was simply buried in the borrowed tomb of a rich man. And Matthew verifies what was said in Isaiah 53 from Matthew 27, 57, says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new tomb, which he had cut from a rock. The point is, other than Joseph, nobody cared. This servant whom Yahweh loved and held in the palm of his hands, the one upon whom the Lord God put his eye of protection, the servant was unjustly murdered and his body placed in a borrowed tomb. When God died, no one mourned. No one cared. No funeral service, no wake, no eulogy, nothing. The disciples all fled. Only Joseph and Pilate and two Marys, Mary and Mary, even took notice, if you look at the Gospels. And I can see Pilate saying, sure, take the body, that way I don't have to deal with it. And from the, from the crowds that hailed him on Palm Sunday to a week later, no one cared, and yet he was innocent. He had done no violence, it says, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And 1 Peter 2.22 echoes that. Peter said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And now we come to an even more difficult part of, the, of this passage, one that we typically don't memorize. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some translations say bruise, and, but the root of the word is to crumble, to beat to pieces, to smite to death, to crush. We could say to beat to a pulp, Right? Sometimes the will of the Lord doesn't feel good. Sometimes the things that Yahweh needs to accomplish can only be accomplished in a certain way and it isn't comfortable. What does that do to you when you read that? It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus, to beat the obedient servant to a pulp. Can you trust a God who crushes people? Or have you bought the lie that says a God who has the capacity to crush people cannot be trusted? You know, sometimes crushing something is necessary for something new or something useful to be made. To make wine, grapes must be crushed. The grapes are stomped on mercilessly. The act of beating something to a pulp or of crushing it causes the fragrant and healing and soothing juice which later becomes wine. The result of crushing the innocent grape is a sweet fragrance, a healing cleanser, and a, and, a, and a soothing balm. We will see that by God crushing Jesus, his blood was offered as a substitutionary sacrifice to God as a sweet fragrance. His blood is a healing cleanser of our transgression and sin and guilt. And his blood, when applied to our wounded souls, is a soothing balm. Knowing that, you still think that a God who has the capacity to crush someone cannot be trusted. If God had crushed us, as we deserved, the rottenness of our sin would not have been a pleasing aroma to God. It would have been putrefying because we reeked of sin and death. And God would have cast us into the fires of hell. Fire is a place where you burn things that are dead and diseased. 
But instead, look at what God did. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. He has put him to grief can also be translated, he has made him sick. He made him sick. He bore, in verse 4 it says, he bore our sicknesses and our griefs. In other words, Jesus bore the sickness of our sin. God made him sick with the rottenness of our sin and the putrefying stench of our death. And he took upon himself the grief that our wretched sin causes. And what did he do with it? It says his soul made an offering for sin. And this line is reminiscent of the Old Testament sacrificial system. When the Israelites of the Old Testament would sin, they would come and they would offer an animal. Almost, most often it was a lamb upon an altar. And the sinner would come and place his hands upon the head of the animal and confess his sin. And then the priest would kill and offer up that animal as a sacrifice. The death of that animal represented the death of the individual deserved. It took the individual's place in death. And the process is called an offering of guilt. The sin offering. The guilt offering. Unfortunately, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 1.3 says that. The sacrificial process was simply a picture to point people to the Lamb of God who would do what? Take away the sins of the world. Only the sacrifice of Jesus can take away sin. People in the Old Testament came to God the same way that we do today, through repentance and faith in the perfect sacrifice of God, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus took all of our sin upon himself, like that lamb did. Verse 12 says that he bore the sin of many. Verse 6 says that the Lord has laid on him the sin of all of us. And the author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. So Jesus offered himself as the guilt offering for all of us. He did that once. He only needed to do it once. Only Jesus could offer himself once and have it be sufficient payment for the sin debt of every person on the planet, past, present, and future, because he was God, and because he was perfect, and because he willingly laid down his life for us. For Jesus was not a victim. Isaiah says his soul made an offering for sin, or for guilt. And I like how one commentator by the name of Paul Hansen put it. He said, the servant was not a pawn in the hands of an arbitrary God, but one who had committed himself freely to the deliberate course of action. Not a victim of circumstances, not a pathetic casualty in the ruthless atrocities that have always been part of human existence, but one who willingly and obediently followed the vision of God's order of righteousness. Such was the servant who chose to make his life an instrument of God's healing. You see, Jesus was not a victim. He willingly and joyfully chose to sacrifice his life so that we could live. Greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And I want you to see how God blessed the servant, Jesus. And then we often equate blessing uh, of God with comfort or wealth or acceptance or power, right? 
We think that God's blessing will lead to physical health, no problems at work, a fat nest egg for retirement. But let's look at what God's blessings for obedience are. Verse 10, chapter 10, or verse 10, uh, second half. The blessings of obedience. The first blessing is that he, the servant, will see his offspring or descendants. So Jesus would see his descendants. Now, what does that mean? He was never married. He never had any children. How would Jesus see his offspring? Well, Jesus talked of rebirth, remember? Being born again. John 3, 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. And, and what this means is that when we are born again, we become Jesus' descendants in the kingdom of God. Listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote. 1 Peter 1.23 Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Who's the word of God? Jesus. We've been born again through the living and abiding person of Jesus. And this is how the servant Jesus can see his offspring. Through faith in him, we become children of God. Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So this grace that we become the offspring of God through Jesus by faith is a blessing, not only for us, but it's also for him. We become his descendants. God calls us his sons and daughters, and he rejoices in that. I just want you to consider the fact that for us as well, our children are a blessing from God, whether physical or spiritual children, right? Having children and grandchildren is a sign of God's blessing in our lives. Why? Because through our descendants, life is carried on. New life is produced, and with it, the opportunity to bring more people into God's kingdom. It's a blessed opportunity to train and disciple our children and grandchildren to love and follow God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second blessing that the suffering servant receives is long life. And that's an interesting blessing, seeing as a suffering servant, Jesus died, right? So what exactly is Isaiah saying? Could he be referring to resurrection in the Old Testament? We're going to come back to that when we get to verse 12. But there's a third blessing that the servant receives, and that's God's purposes will be accomplished by him. Prosperity. Again, we may need to recalibrate our understanding of what blessing means. And here is the blessing from God for the servant, that God's will would prosper in his hand. The servant would accomplish God's will, and it would succeed, and it would prosper. Why? Because God was the one who thought of it, and God was the one who empowered the servant to do it. And the servant had the privilege and the blessing of finding joy and fulfillment in accomplishing the purposes of God through the enabling that God supplied. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. In other words, Jesus looks back out of the anguish that he endured and the offspring that his soul willing, or offering that his soul willingly made for us by taking the wretchedness of our sin upon himself, and he is satisfied. He is satisfied with knowing that the blessing of knowing that he fulfilled God's purposes for him, the blessing of long life after death, and the blessing of seeing all the sons and daughters of God that he was able to produce. So here's the principle. Blessing equals accomplishing the will of God by the power of God for the glory of God. And you can write that down and begin to recalibrate your definition of blessing and success. Blessing, success, 
prosperity is accomplishing the will of God by the power of God for the glory of God. This is the only place where we as humans find true satisfaction, true purpose, true and lasting joy. The place of blessing for us humans is found in accomplishing the will of God by the power of God for the glory of God. Now I could end right there. Park on that for a while and let it sink in. But I can't because we have a few more verses to go and next weekend is Resurrection Sunday. Um, So now we come to our second point and it's much shorter, I promise. Um, And here it it goes from the people speaking to God speaking again in this poem. So it switches mid-verse. God's the one speaking, and and so the poem opens with God speaking, and it closes with God speaking. God is making this declaration, all right? And here is what Yahweh says about the servant in his closing remarks. Chapter 53, 11 to 12. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I would divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. So the second point is the servant offers us righteousness through the knowledge of him. So what knowledge are we talking about? Well, it's the knowledge that he, the servant, accomplished God's will, the knowledge that he correctly and sacrificially made his soul an offering for sin, The knowledge of the fact that he did everything necessary for God's salvation to be offered to sinful humanity. And by this knowledge, the servant will make many righteous. The servant will justify many people. For those who believe in him, the servant will remove the stain of sin from their sinful hearts and God will declare them not guilty, justified, cleansed, righteous, forgiven, just as if they had never sinned. God will remember their sins no more. Because the righteous suffering servant bore the sins in himself on the tree, Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in trespasses, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paid in full pronounced not guilty. Romans 5, 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Aren't you grateful for Jesus? This justification and removal of our guilt is yours, free for the taking when you simply place your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as your substitute, and you will be saved. If you haven't believed yet, I strongly encourage you to do so. And now look at what God does for the suffering servant, how he vindicates him, how he helps him, how he exalts him. And the poem ends similar to how it began. Remember in 52.13, When we started out, he said, Behold, my servant will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up, and he will be exalted. So the prosperity of the servant, because of his obedience, God does two things. He he divides him a portion with the many, and he divides the spoil with the strong. Basically, here's the Jason Knapp rendition of what this means. 
Yahweh, the self-existent one, through his suffering servant Jesus, has won the victory over sin and death. The fact that Yahweh is talking about the servant in language that suggests he's alive can only mean one thing. The servant lives, though he dies. And though the word resurrection is not mentioned here in this Old Testament passage, the assumption is is that the servant was resurrected. The way that Yahweh vindicates his servant and accomplishes his purposes for the world is through raising him from the dead. Because Yahweh has won the victory and raised him from the dead, he gives the servant a portion with the great. In other words, Yahweh gives the servant authority to rule the multitudes. And the servant will divide the spoils of victory with the strong. So so what that means is a servant will share the spoils of victory with those who are strong and healthy. And who are they? All those who are made whole through faith in his sacrifice. So Jesus, the servant, receives authority, honor, privileges of ruling all those who come to him in faith. And Jesus, the servant, bestows the blessings of life and wholeness and strength upon all those who trust in him. So the, the servant prospers, he succeeds, and his success is enjoyed by multitudes of people for the glory of God. And then verse 12, why does the servant get such a privilege and honor and authority from Yahweh? He says, because he poured out his soul to death. He willingly gave himself as a sacrifice unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. So he endured the sin and humiliation of false accusation, unjust treatment. He bore the sin of many. He took the marring and disfiguring and contaminating and wretchedness of our sins upon himself and allowed God to crush him. He gave himself as a sacrifice for the purpose of taking away our sins. And he made intercession for rebels. He mediated a new relationship between Yahweh and the ones who rebelled against him. As I read through the entirety of this poem, you know what struck me? is that the suffering servant, Jesus, was concerned with one thing and one thing only. Accomplishing the will of God by the power of God for the glory of God. The suffering, the ridicule, the false accusations, the mocking, the beating, the rejection, the brutality, the injustice, the murder, and the unconcern, none of it swayed him from his love for Yahweh and his desire to do God's will. Jesus allowed God, the self-existent one, to crush him. Jesus trusted in a God who crushed him for the sins of the world. In entrusting himself to God's will, Jesus in turn loved his enemies, those who ignored him, those who were impossible, those who rejected him, those who were rebels, those who sinned against him, those who believed the lies of Satan, those who wandered off the path of God, those who murdered him, and those who were all full of themselves. This is convicting for me as I consider what this means for us as followers of Jesus. Think of the suffering servant. Think of Jesus, all that he did for you. Let your mind remember the the harshness of this Isaiah poem, the brutality that's described, the psychological, physical pain that he endured. And I want you to hold that picture in your mind as you listen to how the Apostle Paul sought to apply the example of Jesus to us. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 10. You can turn there if you want, otherwise listen as I read. Philippians 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I'm going to pause there. The form of what? The form of a servant. Paul is not writing this a letter in a vacuum. He is fully aware of the poem that we just read from Isaiah and how it was a prophecy of Jesus. Taking the form of a servant, he continues, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And remember what Isaiah said, he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He made his soul an offering for guilt. So he endured the cross. And Paul continues, Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and in earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Isaiah put it this way, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will divide the spoil with the strong. Paul and Isaiah were saying the same thing. And this is how God works. Only through humility comes exaltation. Only through death comes resurrection. And this is the way of Jesus. It is the will of Yahweh, our creator God. Jesus loved God and it cost him his life. God loved us and it cost him his son. And Jesus is our savior. And as Paul says, he's also our example. He modeled for us what living is really about, what true life is really all about. Can we, like Jesus, allow our father Yahweh to crush us, if that's his will? Jesus trusted in a God who crushed him for the sins of someone else. Can that be our attitude toward the Father? Not my will, but yours be done. You see, when our eyes are on God and we are okay with walking to the cross, all the people that would tear us down and all the others are of little concern. We can look to Jesus and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so here's what Paul is saying. Have this mind in yourselves. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the application is this. Like Jesus, be concerned with one thing and one thing only. In humility, accomplishing the will of God by the power of God for the glory of God. This means that if we perhaps suffer ridicule or false accusation or mocking or beating or rejection or slander or injustice or lack of concern from others, we should not allow this to derail us or to sway us from, the, from our love for Yahweh and our desire to do his will. But most of us will not experience those things that I just mentioned. So does that mean we're off the hook? Not really. Here's how it plays out in our daily lives. Will you follow Jesus' example and humbly love your enemy? Okay, maybe you don't have an enemy. How about just your neighbor? You know, the one who ignores you continually. You know the, who I'm talking about. They, like the poem describes, don't even notice you or, or they purposely despise you or they ignore you. They never acknowledge your presence. They make you feel less than. Can you love them like the servant loved those who did not notice him? And what if that neighbor is a family member, or fellow church member, or a co-worker? 
Can you love those who are impossible to love because they continually to reject you and sin against you? They speak evil of you and spread gossip and rumors about you. How about those who are just rebels at heart? They believe the lies of Satan and they wander off the path of God. And can you love them as Jesus loved you in your rebellion and your rejection? Perhaps instead of hearing you condemn their actions, these folks need to see your love, your silent and humble service to God like a lamb that opens not its mouth. So a little closer to home even, what will your marriages look like when you have the mind of Jesus in you? When you desire to do God's will instead of your own, what would happen if you put the interests of your spouse before your own interests? What would your family look like if everyone in the family, parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, all of them, if each one of you in humility all counted the other more significant than yourself? This isn't just for adults. This is for all of us kids, too. <clears throat> what would change about you if your priority was humbly having the mind of Christ, as Paul said, accomplishing the will of God by the power of God for the glory of God? If you thought of life in that light, focusing on the humble character of God and the loving way of Jesus, and less on your own desires and interests and busyness and pleasure. <clears throat> the world tells us that to make a name for ourselves, push our way to the top, promote ourselves, and that's the way that we can be influential and powerful, wealthy, have success. And the lie that many Christians believe is that when we're finally in those places of influence and power and wealth, then, then we can spread that message of Jesus and we can make change happen. That's not God's way. He was despised and rejected and poor and wounded and dead. And yet his death and life has made the greatest impact upon humanity that the world has ever seen. The implications of living the way of Jesus are incredibly humiliating and incredibly powerful at the same time. When we talk of the gospel in this way, of walking the way of Jesus in humility like he did, we begin to understand that God's love was a costly love. We come to experience a severe mercy that brings about a gentle justice. We take on the heart of the rejected teacher of truth who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It comes down to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as ourselves, as Jesus said. And the only way that loving like this is possible is simply through embracing the gracious heart of the suffering servant, what he did for us submitting to the gentle producer of justice, following the light to the nations, obeying the rejected teacher of truth, loving the despised bearer of sin, believing in the crushed offering for guilt, following the humble washer of feet, praising the bestower of a severe mercy, and receiving the gift of a most costly love. Jesus. It's all about him. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Isaiah's poem, and I thank you for how Paul tied it all together for us. It's not easy to do. But when we look to Jesus, and what he did for us, we are eternally and extremely grateful. We would not be sitting here today if it weren't for what he did for us. And we have hope of a future.
beyond this life, a future that's with you, a future that is pain-free and worry-free, full of peace and life, shalom. And we get to be in your presence forever. That is a wonderful promise. So as we walk the journey there, God, I pray that you would help us to walk as Jesus walked, in humility, considering, considering others as more significant than ourselves, and loving as Jesus loved. Show us each how we're supposed to do that in our lives this week as we interact with our spouses and our kids and our family members, our co-workers and those around us. And may our testimony of true love draw others to Jesus, the one who can save us, the only one who can save us because of his perfect sacrifice upon the cross. So thank you for what this passage means for us. I pray that it would stay in our hearts, that it wouldn't go in one ear and out the other, but it would stay in our hearts and that it would change us, that your word and your spirit would change us. We pray these things in the wonderful, gracious, and loving name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, why don't you stand for the benediction? I encourage you to grab coffee, and if you have kids, grab your kids before your coffee. Remember, our teachers work long, hard hours over there, and um, they need to clean up their rooms. So if you could, grab your children right away, and then grab your cup of coffee, and then continue to mingle. um, And we would appreciate that. All right, receive this benediction from Jeremiah 33. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Thank you. You are dismissed. We'll see you next week on Resurrection Sunday.